Hi, this is Aaron Zimmerman, the rector of St. Albans Episcopal Church in Waco, Texas, joining you for the second of three sermons I'll preach on the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel as part of this Lenten preaching series at the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham. Thank you for joining us. The passage that I will speak to you about today is from the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, beginning at the 17th verse, going through verse 31. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard will it be? For those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Here endeth the lesson. Let me pray. Almighty God, through your word, enlighten us, help us to know you, to see you, and to know better who you are, to know ourselves better, that we may more fully trust in thee. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This passage has a very famous verse. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a popular sentiment these days. It's cool to be down on the rich. Uh, my, uh, um, the Gen Y, Generation Y people in my life, um, remember millennials are in their 30s now. Uh, I am not one, I'm Gen X, but people like to hate on millennials, but you have to go younger, the even younger people, the people that were on spring break recently that everybody was hating on. They're not millennials, they're younger. Those are Gen Y and Gen Z. Anyways, uh, the Gen Y and Gen Z people in my life were telling me how among their generation, the TikTok generation, it's uh, sort of in fashion now to look uh, very negatively at people that are wealthy. 
eat the rich is the slogan. And of course they think this is a new slogan, but you have to only go back to the 1980s British film of the same name. And of course, um, where I uh, connect with this phrase is the album uh, by Aerosmith featuring the song called Eat the Rich, which to have Steven Tyler singing negatively about the rich is the height of irony because Mr. Tyler has done quite well in the rock and roll business. My main point, just to start, was, is that people think that this passage is just about how it's bad to be rich, and um, it's sort of Jesus getting very negative on rich people and on people that have wealth, and, um, and they think this passage, then, is about someone else. You know, if it's about rich people, then it's not about me, and even if you are wealthy, there's always somebody else you can point to who has a little bit more, and this passage is about them. But this passage is actually not just about rich people. It's about everybody. Uh, it is about the kingdom of God, which is something we all want to be in. And I want to talk a little bit about the kingdom of God. I want to talk about this passage, and I want to talk about James Brown, the godfather of soul. So this is piggybacking a little bit on yesterday when I talked about the kingdom of God and said that often when we hear that phrase, we think it means heaven. And when we hear this man at the beginning of this passage say, how, must, how can I inherit eternal life? We think it's about heaven. Uh, in the times where Jesus did his ministry, there was not a very developed understanding of the afterlife. This man certainly was not a Christian because Christianity had not yet been invented. And he was speaking in a Jewish context Eternal life had some different connotations then. My point is, the kingdom of God, as I said yesterday, is a word or a phrase that means what is the world like when God is in charge, when you are in right relationship with God and with others. And that has implications for your life now and in the life to come. But kingdom of God, when you hear that in this passage, don't think getting into heaven. It's not what it means. It may have implications for the next life, but it is about being in right relationship with God, God being in charge, you being in right relationship with him and with your fellow human beings, uh, being at peace. And so that's what we want. Uh, the passage is about that. And how do we get in? Now, yesterday, Jesus talked about children, and I talked to you about that, and how children who are weak and who are powerless and who are sinful already have the kingdom of God. Their very weakness and powerlessness is sort of a demonstration of um, the fact that they have to rely on God. And this passage picks up now with another illustration from Mark about what it is like and how we get into this kingdom of God, right relationship with God, and with others. So let's look, I'm going to look at this passage with this man and the exchange that he has with Jesus. And then, as I said, I want to talk a little bit about James Brown and what this passage means for you and for me. So this man runs up to Jesus, kneels before him, and calls him good teacher and asks what he has to do to inherit eternal life. He's laying it on sort of thick. Oh, Jesus, you're such a good teacher. Jesus immediately calls him out on it and says, no one is good but God alone. So the man sort of revises his statement in verse 20, calls him just teacher from that point. He learned the lesson. The flattery was not going to get him anywhere with Jesus. But he asks a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or how am I saved? How do I get right with God? 
and with um, uh, the whole uh, situation of being human. How do I get right? Now, this man is, we get a sense um, from his answer to Jesus' later question that he already is something of a religious overachiever. Uh, he's asking the question maybe a little bit more to show off than because he really wants to know. I think there is some religious sincerity here in him, uh, but um, he's not one that is ignorant of the Jewish law, of the Torah, of the, of the commandments. Because Jesus says to him, uh, you know the commandments, and he tells him some of the commandments. Specifically, tells him uh, number 5 through 10, beginning with, you know, honor your mom and dad, and moving on through don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, and so on. And the man says, I've kept all these since my youth. So, he's good, right? Jesus then says, you lack one thing. And get this, he says it with love in his eyes. He looks at him. This is not a judgmental, critical thing. He says, you just lack one thing. He says, go sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. And then come, follow me. And the man goes away sad. It says he was grieved and he was shocked. He couldn't believe this teaching. And it's because he had a lot of stuff. He was a wealthy man. So what do we note about this? This man was someone who had his, um, his ducks in a row. He was someone who I said was a religious overachiever. He was getting it done. He was doing what many, many people think, maybe you think you need to do to get in the kingdom of God, to be in right relationship with God and others. You have to follow the rules. This man was clearly a very good rule follower, and presumably in business as well. He'd paid off. He was a man with integrity and worked hard and all that. And yet Jesus shows him that he still lacks something. Now, it's important to note the commandments that Jesus left out. Remember, he mentioned numbers 5 through 10, but didn't do 1 through 4, which are all the commandments about putting God first. Uh, no other gods but him, no idolatry, no graven images, and keeping the Sabbath, which is another way of, um, you know, saying my life is not dependent in my labor, but I trust in God and rest in him. And so when Jesus says you lack one thing, this man might be thinking he's going to tell me the four commandments that he didn't mention before. He's going to tell me you need to keep the Sabbath, and you need to put God first and not practice idolatry. And this man then hears something totally different. He says, you have to sell everything you have and give the money to the poor and come follow me. I want to say something about this. Jesus is identifying for the man the one area of his life where he was reliant in himself and not on God. Now, if Jesus had said the other things, don't practice idolatry and don't uh, break the Sabbath, he would have, with those commandments, been able to say the same thing that he could say about the other commandments that he already talked about. He would have been able to say, oh yeah, I keep the Sabbath and I don't practice idolatry, have no graven images in my house whatsoever. But Jesus reveals to him that his heart is idolatrous and is self-absorbed, not focused on God, in this particular area of his life, the attachment that he has to his possessions and to his wealth. 
And so his heart is not fully devoted to God. And Jesus says something else, too. He says, you have to follow me. You have to follow someone else. You have to turn your heart and life over to me. And the man can't do it. So he goes away, as we hear, shocked and grieving. The thing that I wanted to say here is that this passage illustrates quite clearly the two approaches to life. The one where you are dependent on yourself and the one where you're dependent on God. And um, the little example I have for being dependent on self is from James Brown, the godfather of soul, who had an incredible song uh, that was um, uh, written to address issues of racial inequality and civil rights. But if you take it out of its context and sort of apply it as a universal principle, I think it applies to a lot of things that humans experience, that this man, this rich man experience, in which many of us can relate to as well, in which James Brown said, I don't want anybody to give me nothing. Open up the door, I'll get it myself. I'm not gonna do the dance and I don't have a cape. You have to Google it to see the clip, it's amazing. I don't want nobody to give me nothing. Open up the door, I'll get it myself. Now this is an idea that James Brown sang about. It's very much rooted in our American identity of self-reliance and bootstrap pulling and God helps those who help themselves and all that sort of stuff. The only problem is it's antithetical to the gospel. This man thought that he was okay. He thought that he was good. He really was trying to prove his righteousness and he had kept all the rules and he'd done all the things, but here's the thing. He had the same mentality. I'll do it myself. What must, he begins with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He begins with the presumption and the assumption that it's his responsibility, his action, his doing. It looks like piety and he's following the rules, but here's the thing. Here's the question of your life if you wanna be a person who's really spiritually rooted and grounded. Who is the star of the story? Is it you? Or is it God? And what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to help this man. Again, he loves him, remember? He's trying to help him move from being in a place where he, he is the star of the story to a place where God is the star of the story. Because that's where eternal life is. That's where the kingdom of God is. That's where peace with God and your fellow human being is, is where you are no longer James Brown. I'll do it myself but you now are in a place where you are turned over to God and you let God do for you what you cannot do for yourself. It's a place of coming to the end of yourself. And this is where Jesus is trying to help this man get to, but he doesn't want to get there. He wants to continue to be the star of his story. What Jesus does here is reveal the weak spot in this man's life. And we all have it. And this is why it's so important to not see this just as an indictment of rich people. Jesus himself broadens the passage. Yes, he does first say um, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But then in um, the very next verse, he just says to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God for, for anybody, for everybody. Because if you try to do it yourself by taking the bull by the horns, taking the horse by the reins, I'll do it myself, James Brown style. It is hard to enter the kingdom of God. You can't do it. 
And so Jesus says, um, when asked then by the disciples, who get that this is crazy, what do you mean? Uh, if rich people can't get in, these are successful people, rule followers like this righteous man, the disciples would have very much seen his riches as a sign of God's blessing because of his righteousness. The man did good, so he got good stuff. He was rewarded. He got straight A's and a gold star, and so God was good to him. And so Jesus says it's going to be hard for him to enter the kingdom of God. Um, and the disciples then rightly see. They don't say, then, well, how can rich people get saved? They say, then who can be saved? Because they realize that it's a universal indictment. If it's hard for rich people, the good people, the rewarded people, who can get in? It's for everybody. And so Jesus here says this most important verse of the passage. And it's an astounding thing. This is a crazy teaching that flies in the face of everything, almost everything churches and religious people teach. He says this, for mortals, it is impossible. Did you catch that? For human beings, it's impossible. You cannot save yourself. You, you can't do it. You want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Can't do it. Doors closed. You could pull on that handle all you want and you can't get in. Uh, for mortals, it's impossible. Jesus says right here, for people, it's impossible for you to be saved. This is a new thing here. What he says then, though, is the kicker. For God, all things are possible. So the message here for people who want to be saved, people who want to inherit eternal life, people who want to be in the kingdom of God, in a right relationship with God, comfortable in their own skin, at peace with the world and with their creator, if you want that, it's impossible. But for God possible. Do you want to be the star of the story? Because if you do, you'll end up like this rich man, reliant on yourself, but alone and far from God. Or do you want to die to yourself? Admit your own failure, need, lack, and trust in God. Because with God, all things are possible. When Jesus reveals to you your spiritual kryptonite, your one weak place, like this man in the story, the place where you don't have it together, the place where your heart is not fully loving towards God, the place where you have failed, and you have that place in your life, when you have seen that, that for you, like it was for this rich man, is an invitation to turn your life over to Christ, to give up, to give up being the star of your show, because with God, all things are possible. Now, there's one thing here at the end I want to talk about, which is where Peter then says, look, we've left everything and followed you. And it may sound to you like, um, because then Jesus says, yes, and if you've done that, you get all this stuff. It may sound like we're going back now to the law, where if you do give up all your stuff, uh, if you do the thing that he told, Jesus told this man to do, this rich man to do, then you will get things. And it undermines everything I've said. I've said that God has to be the one to save you, not you. But then Peter says, look at all that we've done. We have given up everything. So does that just undermine the whole thing? And no, it doesn't. Jesus says, you will receive all these things, not because you've given them up, but he says for this, because you've given them up for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. Meaning you have done the one thing that this wealthy man wasn't able to do. 
you have given up. You have trusted in Christ. Again, he doesn't just say you'll get rewarded because you gave stuff up to the poor. He says you'll be um, embraced by God because you have given it up for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. You have given up the project of you being the star. You've given up the project of you living a life that is focused on yourself and your own accomplishments and your own pedigree building and resume building and amassing all those accomplishments. You've given that up to follow Christ and to trust in him to be your righteousness and him to be your salvation and him to be the source of pardon and mercy. You're not standing on your own two feet in your own righteous deeds. You've given them up for the sake of the gospel. Well, what does that look like? What does that look like to be someone who's no longer the star of his or her own story, but instead relies totally on God, knowing that they cannot save themselves and only God can do it? It looks like rest. It looks like trust. It looks like peace. But it can also look a little scary because it's a relinquishing of control. There's a scene in the movie Just Mercy, which just came out last year, starring Michael B. Jordan and a fine cast of people, telling this true story of a lawyer named Brian Stevenson who began working in the late 80s and early 90s in rural Alabama on death row to um, uh, provide legal aid to those who were on death row and may have been wrongly convicted. And he works first with a man named Johnny D who was accused of a murder he didn't commit, but was convicted and put on death row. And there's a scene in which he gets a retrial and there is a man there who is going to give testimony that will exonerate him. And you see the fear and panic in Johnny D's eyes because he's not sure if this other person is going to exonerate him. There's another scene in which he's got to simply trust his lawyer. Will his lawyer be able to help his case and advance his cause? Because he's been failed so many times before. But he's got to yield and give up everything. Uh, the sense of even control and his own sense of kind of uh, his, the grudges that he holds. And he's got to try again. He's got to give up. He's got to yield. He's got to put his fate in the hands of other people. Which is what it means to trust God and not you. But... Of course, um, this movie illustrates it and your own life illustrates it. When you trust God, and I know it sounds easy, it sounds easy to say, but I've seen it time and time again. When you trust God, God, who is in the business of taking people who are at the end of themselves, God will meet you. God will meet you powerfully and profoundly uh, and will um, take you uh, out of that place where you're the star of your own story, out of the place where you are trying to score points with him, which is an exhausting place to be, and will give you the kingdom, which I said yesterday, is already yours. Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Let us pray. Almighty God, as we reach the end of ourselves and grow tired of being the star of our own stories, help us to rest and to trust in you, not ourselves, and to find you mighty to save, the God for whom all things are possible, including the salvation of sinners like us. 
We pray this in the name of Christ, the one who loves us. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.